0: turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 7. We'll be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 7. This is on page 284 in the Pew Bible and I'll be reading from the New King James Version which is the same translation you have there in the Pew. Our congregation has been working through the book of Judges and we've sort of uh, paused uh, to spend a little more time on the story of Gideon. It is the longest story of, uh, in the, um, amongst the Judges' stories And there's a lot of interesting things going on in the calling of of Gideon. Gideon was fearful, he was hiding, and God comes to him and says, you are a mighty man of valor, and you will save Israel. He doesn't seem like he's up for it, but God gives him sort of a preliminary uh, job to do, and that is to tear down the idol in his own household, his own extended family. And he does that, and God begins to raise him up as the leader of the people. Uh, Last week we looked at the fact that the the Lord was gracious to him in uh, giving him some miraculous signs to uh, bolster his flagging faith. And so uh, now we have uh, uh, a new uh, thing going on here that is somewhat surprising. I think the children probably know the answer to this, but I'll, I'll ask. So children, do you think if you are getting ready for a battle... That you want more soldiers in your army or fewer soldiers in your army? What, what do you think would be the best? Go ahead. Okay, I, I, I thought everyone agree with more soldiers. That is the right answer. That is what we want. And so it's very interesting here as I read this. You'll notice God seems to have a different thing in mind because he, he takes away a lot of the soldiers. So let's try to figure out what's going on here And uh, as God is working with Gideon. So let's read now. This is God's word. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod. So that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midians into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that those of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of those of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent." and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, I read an article last week that said the ticket prices for the men's basketball final four were down 91% from last year. And I guess that's kind of on the open market. And I suppose, uh, because there have been so many upsets, maybe the, the universe of people wanting to see Florida, Atlantic or San Diego State, or, you know is a little bit smaller than the universe that wanted to see North Carolina and Kansas and teams like that last year. There have been all kinds of upsets. Now some of those upsets, we have to admit, we enjoyed. In our heart, we enjoyed watching some of those upsets. Other of them, not so pleasant. They were upsetting to us. What I found fascinating is that after the games, uh, the interviewer on the court brings the coach and the star player up and basically asks some question like, how are you so awesome? Uh, This kind of, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that really is the question. And then the answer is always, I mean, it's, it's unbelievably predictable, right? It's um, my teammates really believed in me. Uh, they put me in the right position. They believed in me or I believed in them or the coaches believed in me or I believed in them. Or uh, we just really work hard, something to the effect that we just really work hard. It, it is incredible because from time to time, someone will say, I thank God, you know, and, and that's really kind of the right answer, but you don't get that very often. Now, we can forgive athletes who are suddenly have a microphone put in their mouth, in front of their face, for not getting that right. What's harder to sort of forgive is that you and I, as God's people who know better, are often led into thinking, um, look at what I've done. And we can think about the situations in our families, our jobs, our church sometimes, uh, the abilities that the Lord's given us, the things that we've done, and we can start to think um, that we did that, and not think this is the result of God's work. God is the one who's done it. And that can even slide over into the way we think about our faith and our salvation. And that's when it's really troubling. Because don't you all feel like in some little way you contributed to your salvation? Even if it was just, hey, I figured this out. Or, hey, I knew enough to pray this particular prayer or something like that. It's really tempting for us to to be drawn into this kind of thinking. Well, Gideon here is in a precarious situation. God's given him a huge job to do, this massive um, group of people that has come in from the outside that are impoverishing the people of Israel. And God had appeared to Gideon, remember, to encourage him and to show him, I'm with you, Gideon, and, uh, and you're going to get this job done. But now God takes an extra step here to make sure that Gideon is going to know that God did it. When what is about to happen happens, there's going to be absolutely no way that Gideon can take credit for it. And so, in a sense, God is wanting Gideon to know his own weakness as he approaches this task so that God's strength will be magnified and God will get the glory. And that's what we hope to see as we look at the passage. I've given it to you as a main point in the outline, in the bulletin. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. So we are to serve him not in our own strength, but in the strength of his son. And uh, we'll see how that comes out in the text. And you children who might want to draw a picture for me, and you've been doing a wonderful job with your pictures, maybe you could draw a picture of one of these soldiers drinking Uh, from the water and you're gonna have to listen closely to try to figure out what's going on with this uh, drinking test that God uses for them well as we start working through the passage the first thing I want us to notice is that in God's wisdom he uses weak people to accomplish his work on the earth we we've seen this again and again in this book last week we saw how God had to reassure Gideon he asked for this miraculous sign with the fleece and um he was, uh, he was wanting to know that God was the God of this land and had the power. And so God in, encourages him in, in that way. In verse 1 in our text suggests that indeed Gideon's faith is, has been bolstered. It says that uh, all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the, uh, was on the north of them by the hill of Moray in the ba- valley. So what we see here is a man who has become a man of action. Again, he's, he's leading with resolve. He rises early. He gets his, his army to a place where it has a good water source. He commands the heights. They're actually on Mount Gilboa, which is on the southeast uh, end of the, of the Jezreel Valley. We said that's the, big, the good farmland. And it goes from the Mediterranean Sea all the way in, Uh, just south of the Sea of Galilee and dumps into the Jordan River. So he's on the southeast side of that, and he's above the Midianites. He's gotten the heights. They're down several miles away in the valley, and so it looks like uh, Gideon is acting. Now, the the odds are not great for Gideon. He has 32,000 soldiers, and the Midianites are 135,000. So we got that children, 135,000 is a lot more than 32,000. They're, they're outnumbered about four to one. So the, the odds are not great. But you realize the odds are not actually impossible. Uh, I did a little search because I'm not a tremendous military historian. But if you look at you know battles that were won against the odds, there's a lot of them in there. There were some in our own civil war. One that I thought was interesting, the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. The English were greatly outnumbered by the French, and yet the English won, uh, largely because of the terrain they were on and their effective use of the longbow. And so they were able to defeat a force that was considerably larger than them. That was part of the Hundred Years' War. Well, our Bible tells us, right, that... that uh, that things that are unlikely can happen. But it also tells us that things that are completely impossible uh, happen. So this isn't just something that's rare. It's something that cannot happen apart from the work of God. And, and um, for example, if you look at back in, in Israel's history, um, when Israel came out of Egypt, Israel was a group of non-trained uh, slaves, and they had been herdsmen. And yet they defeated the greatest army uh, in the world at that time, Pharaoh's army. Now, children, do you remember how they defeated Pharaoh's army? Was there a giant battle? Do you remember that? Was there a big battle? Do you remember, Augie? Okay, that's all right. The Red Sea. Right? They just fled in the Red Sea, and God completely buried them. That's how they won that one. So the point is, God, God doesn't actually need uh, an army at all to work with. And so as we're calculating odds and things like that, we're, we're kind of missing the point, aren't we? God doesn't need an army at all. He can destroy the biggest army on the planet without using human instruments at all. And there are several th- accounts in the Bible where similar things happen. And yet, most of the time, God, in his wisdom, chooses to work through his people, as weak as they are. And, and that actually is what we're going to see in the book of Joshua, our Judges, sorry, from here on out. The first few Judges, we, we said well, these were people almost without fault, at least the way they're described to us. And so we kind of, have, well, Othniel was a great warrior, and he does that, so we expect that. Well, now, from Gideon on, all of the judges are presented to us with all their warts, with all their weaknesses, and with all their faults, and these are the people God is going to use to liberate his people time and again. And, and that is an encouragement to you and to me because God's determined to work, and he's determined to work through people like you and me. And, and we're, we're aware of our weaknesses, we're aware of our faults, but yet God is absolutely committed to working and accomplishing his work through people who are weak. And that's a great encouragement. But there's also a danger there. Secondly, we see that. There's a danger that if you're going to be used by God, you will try to take credit for God's work in you and through you. Uh, this, is a, this is a common thing that, well, if God's going to use us, we start to take credit for that. Uh, so God here is, is assessing the situation in verse 2. And it says that God says to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. So God looks at the four to one odds and he says, those odds are too good. There's too many of you Israelites. Uh, and if God is saying, basically, if I use this, force of 32,000 to defeat the force of 135,000, you are going to find a way to take credit for this. And notice, God makes it clear that taking credit for it is a way of robbing God. Uh, he, says, he says, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. And the ESV says over me. That in a sense, we're, we're putting ourselves over God. This is an act against God, When we take to ourselves credit which is due only to God. And it does suggest that this is a common temptation. When it comes to our salvation, that at some level we're either going to give the credit for that to God or we're going to try to give the credit for that to ourselves in some way that this is a temptation we're fighting with. I think this is one of the strengths of Reformed theology because properly understood we're saying it's not my behavior it's not even my faith it's not my decision it's none of these things that i have done or will do that have brought me into the kingdom it's the heavenly father choosing me before the foundations of the world it's the son of god dying in my place and paying for my sins and it's the holy spirit working faith in my heart enabling me to believe and there's no point in there where i am the one who is contributing to my salvation tim keller speaking about this says this is the greatest spiritual danger there is that we should believe that we can save or that we have saved ourselves and this is why what we sang in psalm 115 should be our cry not unto us O lord Not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. And this is a challenge for us. We need to continue to remind ourselves. I I think it's it's even a challenge in our own congregation. For those of you who've been around a while, our church is, is sort of almost tripled in size since the late 1980s. And, and there's been a lot of prayer. There's been a lot of ministry. There have been a lot of people doing things. And so it's very easy for us to think in our hearts, well, oh, look what we've done here. This is pretty good what we've done here. And yet I think about all the other churches where people have prayed hard, worked hard, done a lot of ministry, and God was not Pleased to revive the congregation. And if if we think it's about our efforts, we we are missing the whole picture. And we have to remind ourselves, this is is God's work. And we can be thankful that God was pleased to work through us, but he has to get all the credit. And and our desire is that the church will continue to prosper and serve the Lord. But that's that's got to be if God works and his spirit works works. We want him to get all the credit. And that's not just true for our congregation. It's, tr- it's got to be true for our families. It's got to be true for our personal lives that we would not uh, succumb to the temptation to take credit for God's work. Well, thirdly, we see here that God will actually not share his glory with you. You see, he says in verse two, the people are too numerous. God's absolutely not going to let them be in a situation where they can give themselves credit. And so he's going to take care of the quote-unquote problem of their numbers and, uh, and make sure that this isn't going to be an impediment to them. And so we should recognize that this is a blessing. This attitude of God is actually a blessing to us because he must defend the honor of his name and it's not good for us to take credit for his work. And so correcting this uh, is a good thing when God does this Isaiah 42 8 I should have mentioned these cross references are in the bulletin there I am the Lord that is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images if you look at that passage Isaiah 42 is about the coming Messiah and God's telling that telling them who the Messiah is what he's going to do what he's going to be like and, uh, and and ensuring that he's going to come And then he's saying, I'm the Lord, and I share my glory with no other. And I think the implication is uh, the Messiah, he shares his glory with the Messiah, the Messiah who's fully God. And unless you think you're the Messiah, uh, don't think that you're going to have his glory shared with you um, because uh, it wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate. And and this is, again, a reminder that in this whole scheme the real battle is for the hearts of the Israelites. That's the issue. And if God uses them to defeat the Midianites, but then they go away taking God's glory to themselves, they're, they're still enslaved. They're still idolaters. And, and, and their real problem hasn't been solved. So they've got to win, but they've got to win in such a way that they don't create new idols in their life. And they recognize that it is their God who saved them and who delivered them. And I think we can be thankful that we have a God who loves us and who doesn't want us to be in the habit of taking his glory onto ourselves. Now you can probably think of times in your own life where you were reminded of this kind of thing. This is a a minor example, but it it was burned into my consciousness because the Lord uh, did it so dramatically to me. And when I was first out of uh, college uh, and Amy and I were, were working at a boarding school. I was coaching soccer there and uh, I was one of the assistant coaches and the c- uh, head coach said, go work with these guys on how to take penalty kicks. You know, put the ball 12 yards out to the goalies there in the goal. So I had just come off uh, playing in college. I had been five for five on penalty kicks the previous spring and so I thought in my own heart, uh, what better person than myself to demonstrate and show these uh, youngsters how to take a penalty kick. And so I explained the the you know the strategy and everything else. I put the ball down and it was very interesting because in the back of my mind this little voice said, you don't really have to kick one. You don't have to hit one. You can just explain what you're talking about. But of course, I went ahead and hit one. And somehow I hit the ball so that it almost went straight sideways, like it got nowhere near the goal. I could not do that again if I tried, I don't think. And it was so ridiculous that I knew instantly, I knew instantly that that was the Lord's way of just whacking me upside the head and telling me, you know, you should really be grateful that you made those five kicks that, when it really counted. And, and it was incredibly painful in the moment But how thankful we should be that God is willing to do that to us. Now, uh, I'm not going to make you all raise your hands and tell your story. I should. But uh, I'm sure that's happened in your own life. Right? And you recognize that's the work of God. I will not share my glory with another. You try to take it to yourself. And you're going to feel that in some way. That's that's painful. But this is the grace of God of God in doing that. Well, God alone is God, and so he will not share his glory. In fact, we see in this text that God may actually take radical steps to show you how weak you really are, and this is what we see in verses three to eight. And there's an interesting symmetry here because Gideon tested God two times with the fleece. We read about that last week. Now God is testing Gideon or the army, two times, and that he uses the word test specifically in the second test, and it has there the sense of refining or purifying. He's going to purify the army. Now the first test in verse three is is pretty straightforward. Say to the people, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. I think this is supposed to be Mount Gilboa unless there was some part of Gilboa that was also called Gilead. Gilead's on the other side of the Jordan River. So these people were at Mount Gilboa at this time. Now you might say, well, what's this about? Well, I put in your outline Deuteronomy 20, uh, a couple of verses one and two and then verse eight. And these were provisions in the law of God. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And then the priest asks about, you know, is anyone newly married? Is anyone newly built a house? This kind of thing. And then in verse 8, the officers shall speak further to the people and say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brother and faint like his heart. So this is, this is standard procedure. Fear is contagious. And if people were distracted or fearful, they, they were sent home. Now, Gideon doesn't, I, I'm sure when they make this call, Gideon isn't, isn't expecting that just like that, uh, 70% of his army just walks off the field. But that's what happens. 22 of the 32,000, they just, oh, okay, we can leave. Oh great! Thank you. And there they all go. Now there's still 135,000 Midianites there who are impoverishing everybody. So how is this problem going to get solved? Now, children, this is what I said. This is this is maybe confusing to us because now the odds are 13 and a half to one. There's 13 and a half enemy soldiers for every Israelite soldier. So the numbers just got a lot more difficult. And so we might think, okay, I'm not sure what's going on here, uh, but this sounds kind of scary. Well, incredibly, in verse 4, God says to Gideon, the people are still too many. So it's still too many. So he institutes test number two. I will test them for you down by the waters. So they come down to the water, and he separates them into two groups. Now, if you find this description somewhat confusing, you're not alone. I think the two groups are one group who squats down and puts their hand in the water and brings it to their mouth. It's confusing because he calls that lapping like a dog, and I've never seen a dog use its paw to bring its water up to its mouth. So I don't know, it's just cupping the water and bringing up, that's one group. The other group are just getting down on the ground and putting their mouth right into the stream uh, and just, just... gulping it right out of the water. Now we think that sounds more like a dog, but that's, that's not the way it's described here. So it's the crouchers and, the, and the, those who who uh, take it in their hands versus those who just put their face down in the water. And God tells in verse, uh, verse 7, uh, keep the 300 who lapped, those are the ones who used their hands, and I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go. 9,700 get to go. And at this point, the commentators have a field day trying to explain the virtues of the one way of drinking and the vices of the other way of drinking. And even Matthew Henry gets in on this act. Uh, Matthew Henry says about the, the, the men who crouch and use their hands, These are men who are hardy, that could long endure fatigue without complaining or thirst or weariness. Um, and if you're asking, where did he get that in the text, <laughs> you're right. It's not there. This is an assumption uh, that there must be some uh, reason for this. And, um, and there probably is a reason, but we are not privy to it. Um, Ralph Davis, who uh, is speaking at the Reformation Indy Conference in April, April 14 and 15, up at Southside, he's he's one of the best commentators on Old Testament narratives, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Judges, um, Joshua. Definitely worth your time if you can get up there, even just to hear a talk or two. It's it's free. It's it's close by. It's in Greenwood. But Ralph Davis um, notes the affinity people have for the Lappers. The uh, the, hand, the hand-using drinkers, uh, but he says in his commentary, verse 2 must eat its way into the grooves of our gray matter. This verse, and not the so-called vigilance of the lappers, is the key for interpreting this section. Uh, so children, your gray matter is your brain. right? What he's saying is it's, verse 2 tells us God says there's too many of you I must reduce the number. And that's why this is happening. This is God uh, reducing the army, refining the army, so there's no way the human actors can take credit. Uh, Barry Webb, speaking about this, says, the bottom line is that this was God's test, and he did it to take away everything that Gideon could possibly trust in except God himself, and to make sure that Israel would give the glory for what was about to happen to God alone. So they go from 32,000 to 300. That's a 99% reduction. And now there are 450 Midianite soldiers for every Israelite soldier. So it's, it's nothing more than a suicide mission at this point, except for the fact that this is what God wants to do. And God's going to be in the middle of it. And isn't that interesting that God takes away everything you could trust in uh, to magnify himself. We, we prayed about this earlier in the service and, and our hearts are heavy for our brothers and sisters in Nashville who were the victims of a targeted, clearly a targeted attack that killed three uh, nine-year-old children and three adults. And at a minimum, we can say that God has reduced them. God, God has taken away, taken away from them in a dramatic way. He's taken radical steps that make it impossible to trust in anything else but God for them. And and I'm not in any way saying that's, that's what they needed or that's somehow what they deserved. All I'm saying is that when God does this kind of thing in our lives, it's not because he's angry with us. It's not because he's punishing us. It's because he loves us. And sometimes he does things that are radical from our perspective to take away anything we would hope in apart from him. And you might think about that in your own life. Have you seen God take something away from you that you were relying on, that you had invested tremendous hope in? And you see how when that gets stripped away, suddenly we're forced to rest on God alone. And it's tempting to see that as a punishment. And God isn't here punishing Gideon. He's not punishing the, the guys that drank you know, with their mouth. and all. He's not punishing them at all. He's reducing them So that they will know that they have nothing they can hope in except God and God alone. And and that's actually a blessing to us when uh, we're driven to that realization. God may take radical steps to show us how weak we really are. Finally then, we see here that we are called to serve God in Jesus' strength. We don't have our own strength. But we are to serve God in Jesus' strength. Jesus, the one who was made weak for us so that we could be strong in him. You see what's going on here. Last week, God is there bolstering Gideon's flagging faith by the signs of the fleeces. Now today, he's testing and refining that faith, taking away things from Gideon. Uh, Children... Your parents want you to be confident. I I know that's true. They're raising you. They want you to be confident. And at the same time, they don't want you to be too confident. Uh, This is why parenting is difficult, isn't it? Uh, How how do you thread the needle uh, and and make sure that you're not going too far one way or the other? But this is, in a sense, what God is doing. I'm going to save by your hand. He he told him that. He showed him that. And then he does something so crazy, in a sense, that, y- y- you know, it's all got to be you, God. It-, it can only be you if we're going to do this. Paul describes this phenomenon in 2 Corinthians 12 this way. He says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure." And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had been taken to heaven. He says that. He had seen heaven. And to keep him from getting too proud or arrogant, God had given him a physical uh, ailment of some sort. And he asked God to remove it, and God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You could paraphrase that as, God's saying my power is most fully displayed when my people are weak and yet they trust me anyway. That's the most uh, glorifying uh, message about God that we can send. Not that we're strong. The world tells you you gotta look tough even if you don't feel tough, right? That it's all about image. And God's saying no it's not. God's saying it's all about knowing that you're weak and yet trusting him anyway and being confident in him anyway because he's the one who's going to use your your weakness to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. And we understand we can only do this through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only truly strong person. He had no weakness in himself at all. He didn't struggle with an out of control temper or addictions or lust or anger or impatience or selfishness or pride or laziness. Every attitude, every motivation, every word, every action, it was all perfectly submitted to God the Father and obedient. Jesus was the truly strong man, and yet he made himself weak. He allowed himself to be beaten arrested, stripped, naked, nailed to a cross, humiliated, abandoned, and forsaken by God. And he did that. He made himself poor so that people like you and me could be rich in him. And, and what, what strength have you been given by the Lord Jesus? You've been forgiven. You've been adopted into his family. You've been redeemed. You've been liberated. You've been equipped to serve. So, so Gideon and the 300 men, they must act. We'll read about that, Lord willing, next time. They must act. It, it, we're not here preaching passivity. We all just sit around now because God's doing They must act, but it's God working in them. They cannot defeat 135,000 soldiers. And any ideas they have about glory for themselves go out the window. They become, in a sense, uh, eager uh, participants and sort of spectators, and what is God going to do? How is this actually going to work? I can't wait to find out. I'm going to be a part of it. I have no idea how this is going to work out, but I know it's going to work out, and I'll have the privilege of being a part of it. Uh, someone directed me to the opening um, of the the first episode in the Band of Brothers. If you've ever seen that? The, the, based on the true story of uh, some airborne paratroopers in World War II. And uh, a lot of times at the beginning, they actually interview the actual soldiers, these men near the end of their lives. They're all, they're all dead now. This was made around 2000. And uh, they would be interviewed, and then it would sort of morph into the, the, the actors playing the part. And in the first episode, uh, one of the men is commenting on, you know, we were attacked what started World War II was we were attacked and everyone wanted to do something. And he goes on to say, we came from a small town and three fellows in that town were 4F, which means they were physically unfit to serve. And they committed suicide because they couldn't go. And then this soldier says, just pauses and says that was a different time. That was a different time. Because if somebody was 4F today, it'd be like I just won the lottery. I I don't have to go. But the attitude then was I want to go. I want to do what I can do. And you realize that before God, every one of us is 4F. We are unfit to serve the living God. And yet he says, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. I take 4F people, and I use them to do my work in the world. And how much more should our attitude be I just want to be used. Lord, do with me what you will, but I want to be in the game. I want to be a part of what you're doing. Not because I can do it, but because of the blessing of having you work through me. You're weak, but the passage is reminding you God's strength shows forth in your weakness. And that's a tremendous blessing. So serve him, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was made weak so that you could be strong in him. Let's pray and we'll ask him to do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us enough uh, to do just what you're doing to Gideon here at times. You just strip away anything that we might be trusting in apart from you. Uh, And you remind us, we we really don't have anything that we're bringing to the table uh, that you haven't already given us. But Lord, it's so encouraging to realize that's not an impediment for your using us. You you are going to get the job done here with Gideon and this 300 uh, group And uh, you've promised that you will work through your people as we trust in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us when we are tempted to take credit for your work. Uh, Help us when we uh, are tempted to feel like we've got to appear strong. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace to see see us as you see us, uh, those who are weak but who are made strong by your grace. We thank you for our Savior who was brought so low for us. And uh, we thank you that you lift us up in him. We pray that you would turn our hearts to him and prepare us to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening and that you would bless us throughout this week, that we would walk in your ways. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing back in praise to the Lord now from... Psalm 18, Selection A, I love you, Lord, you are my strength. The psalmist knows a time of despair, and yet he says, I love you, Lord, you are my strength. The Lord, my rock, my fort, my power, my God, my hiding place, my shield, my horn of safety, and my tower. It multiplies the uh, images there of God as our strength. Let's stand and sing our praise to him.